Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hope all of you are having a good weekend so far. I know where I'm at, um, we're still under an ice storm warning uh, that will go into effect until the early morning hours of tomorrow. So for those of you who are uh, listening to my podcasts and live in uh, Virginia, most notably, um, or pretty much anywhere in Virginia, I know has been um, mostly impacted by winter weather, but hopefully all of you are uh, staying safe. Uh, Here we are again discussing about uh, George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and the killing that shocked a new nation in Bruce Chadwick's I Am Murdered. Uh, We had a very good session uh, the previous um, day that I was on, uh, but then again, I don't think there's ever been a bad session, whether it's been with this book or any of the other books that that all of you have uh, listened to in my podcast series. But the uh, previous uh, session, we talked about how uh, Wythe and Jefferson met one another um, when Jefferson set foot on Williamsburg's uh, campus, on William and Mary's uh, campus, rather, I should say, in Williamsburg in uh, 1759. But now we're going to discuss how Jefferson, or let alone Thomas Jefferson, and Mr. George Wythe go about remaking Virginia. That's an interesting um, title right there, Jefferson and Wythe Remake Virginia. I'm sure many of you are asking yourselves, well, how are these two going to go about remaking Virginia? Is it Virginia fine? Well, well, for starters, uh, Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies. And when you're the largest of the 13 colonies, not, not only do you have a lot to gain, but if you're not careful, you also could have a lot to lose. But during the 1770s, they are, um, I don't know if I'd say exciting times is the right word, but they are, um, but it's a sign of the times. In other words, We've already um, demonstrated our um, hostilities towards the Stamp Act, which uh, led to that famous rally cry of taxation without representation. We have denounced pretty much every uh, piece of legislation that Parliament has um, passed as they are trying so hard in vain to um, for us to um, do them a favor by um, raising money on our end that would go to the British Treasury to help uh, pay expenses from the French and Indian War. The only problem, uh, as I said from the previous podcast, was that um, there was never um, any means of proper consent. In other words, Parliament passed the laws without without letting us, the people, have a say. And of course, that leads, uh, or that led King George III to eventually call the 13 colonies his ungrateful subjects. So, we're now going to venture into the uh, late 1770s, and by the late 1770s, most notably uh, 1778, we're already three years into the American Revolutionary War, the tide uh, now shifts in terms of where the fighting will uh, be taking place. The last uh, battle in the northern uh, colonies, or the northern and middle colonies, most notably, the middle by this point in 1778 is uh, a stalemate uh, result from uh, Monmouth Courthouse. And a prominent uh, Virginian um, came to the rescue. And I do believe that I might have shared this when I uh, discussed the book Founding Rivals, Madison versus Monroe, um, the Bill of Rights and the election that saved a nation. But before the Bill of Rights and all that, we were still fighting the American Revolutionary War. And a fellow named James Monroe was able to come to the rescue at Monmouth Courthouse and basically um, 
establish a flanking post that would have prevented the enemy, being the British, from taking over to the point where hundreds of men would have been captured and it would have resulted in a um, slaughter. Sadly enough, um, the general who was supposed to have um, taken uh, charge at Monmouth Courthouse turned out to be a real coward, being uh, Charles Lee. Matter of fact, Charles Lee had been a prisoner. Uh, Charles Lee really was a very um, incompetent leader. He uh, betrayed George Washington's trust, but had it not been for James Monroe stepping up at that last second, uh, the Continental Army would have probably been annihilated at Monmouth Courthouse. But that is where uh, fighting in the North comes to a stalemate, and so the British now decide, after three years, with no resolution in sight, that they have decided now that we're going to take the fighting South. And that includes Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia. So, we'll go to the year 1779. What high-level executive position does Thomas Jefferson attain? He becomes Virginia's governor. Now, here's a, a, a question that I could throw right away. Did, didn't Virginia, like the other 12 colonies, have royal governors? Absolutely. But what did Virginia and the other 12 colonies do that was smart? They ousted their royal governors. South Carolina and New Hampshire were the first two to uh, oust their royal governors at the start of 1776, and they were also the first, of the, the first two of the 13 colonies to actually implement uh, state constitutions as well as electing their own governors. So uh, Patrick Henry actually was our Virginia's first non-royal governor. Thomas Jefferson succeeds him. What's also unique about the year 1779 for Thomas Jefferson is that he um, is that uh, William and Mary names him to um, names him as a member uh, to the to their board of visitors, or let alone being the school's governing board. Well, this is a very unique um, honor for Jefferson to have. Given that he's governor, he is in favor of advocating full-scale restructuring of the college. Now, full-scale restructuring, is that good or is it bad? Well, it could be both, but there were some good things that Thomas Jefferson did with this. On the other hand, there were some things that um, would have questioned um, those, um, especially when it came to religion, and I'll get to that here in a moment. Given that Jefferson advocates full-scale restructuring of William & Mary, uh, some of the things he goes about abolishing are the grammar school to doing away with teaching divinity in language. Divin divinity, folks, is another word for religious teachings. Why do you think Thomas Jefferson would have done away with divinity? After all, Virginia had had a relationship with the Church of England, the Anglican Church. Thomas Jefferson, yes, he grew up in the Anglican Church, but when it comes to William and Mary, times uh, start changing, and his views on religion also change as well. Jefferson, having met George With, agrees that, um, that there needs to be a separation of church and state. In other words, the church cannot be telling the government how to run its affairs, and the government itself should not be telling the church how to go about teaching its congregation. So, by teaching religion in 
in a university setting or at a college setting, Jefferson feels that the students would be subjected against their own will to only um, be taught religious teachings under one um, religious sect or de denomination. Jeff if Jefferson, Jefferson, I will say, would be very happy to know in today's time that, for one, religion is taught, but two, it's not confined to where students are being forced to learn just one religious sect. They're learning about a variety of different religious sects and how those different religions um, go about interpreting um, not just the Bible in general, but but just interpreting uh, biblical um, contexts. So that's where um, I think Jefferson would be very happy to know about the religious diversity aspect part. But in the time of the American Revolution, especially in Virginia, Jefferson being governor, the teachings, religious teachings, just are not on his um, high priority list. But he does advocate a one uh, professor, one tier professorship um, in the positions of subjects being that of anatomy, medicine, chemistry, as well as law. And he gives the law professorship position to Mr. George Wythe. Rightfully so. After all, Jefferson looks up to Wythe as a father-like figure and with has um, obviously mentored so many young men that this is a very, very deserving title. So Jefferson envisions William and Mary as an institution where men ultimately became essential leaders to Virginia's political system. They're not there just to get an education. They need to take their education and become um, productive um, individuals whom will serve as uh, good role models uh, to Virginia's uh, governing society. Now, once Jefferson becomes more involved in politics, which he obviously has done by the time he becomes governor, his relationship to George Wythe becomes even stronger. And let me ask you this. Is Thomas Jefferson married by 1779? Yes, he did marry... Um, seven years earlier in 1772, just before he turned the age of 30, he married a woman named uh, Martha Wales Skelton. Martha Wales uh, Skelton comes from a very well-to-do uh, family. Her father owned, um, her father was a very uh, well-to-do landowner. His name was John Wales. He owned uh, property in uh, Charles City County, which is right next door to James City County, where Williamsburg is. His land holdings went as far west as uh, Bedford County, uh, which is just on the outskirts of uh, Lynchburg, but it's more in between Roanoke and Lynchburg. And it just so happens at Bedford County that Mr. John Wales owned uh, property that Thomas Jefferson and his wife inherited after his passing, where uh, Jefferson would, in oh, years later, uh, build a getaway retreat home that is open to the public, known as Poplar Forest, and we do have the people of Bedford County to thank for saving Poplar Forest back in the early 80s because uh, for a long time, up until the time Jefferson died, uh, not to get off track, but for those of you who would like to know some brief 101 um, information on Poplar Forest, uh, Thomas Jefferson gave uh, Poplar Forest to his grandson, Francis Epps. And about two years after Jefferson died in 1826, Francis Epps sold Poplar Forest and moved, uh, moved elsewhere, but it was uh, inherited by um, a couple of other uh, families who lived at the home for many years. Uh, my dad, given that he was from Lynchburg, remembers when it was in private hands. 
But up until the late 70s, at the start of 1980, no one uh, was living at Poplar Forest, and sadly the home was in in a bad state of disarray, and there were those who wanted to condemn the home, but thank heavens the people of Bedford County came together to um, prevent it from happening, and if it hadn't been for them, uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, getaway retreat home would no longer be in existence. Uh, my wife and I have been there. Um, and it's very well worth visiting. As a matter of fact, it was the first octagonal home built in the United States. And then the home itself was built when Jefferson was officially done in terms of being built when Jefferson was president um, about three years before his presidency ended, which would have been around 1806. So anyways, yes, Jefferson did marry. And um, sadly, his wife did pass away in the uh, 1780s. Uh, she died uh, from... Uh, complications uh, due to childbirth, and um, it was a very um, tough loss for uh, Jefferson. Uh, he and his wife did have, um, I want to say five or six children, but only two, uh, two of the uh, children only made it into a adulthood. One um, made it past the age of 10, but did not make it into a adulthood, but sadly he um he uh, did have a son who sadly died at uh, childbirth. Um, so we must keep in mind that our forefathers did suffer some very uh, tragic uh, circumstances in their times, um, not just with losing a loved one, but also the death of a child. But it turns out that Jefferson and his wife Martha often stayed in Williamsburg with George Wythe and his wife. And they became very fond of everyone who uh, lived at the Wythe house, and after all, uh, George Wythe and his wife did have um, slaves um, who assisted them with the um, the business of the um, of the estate's affairs. And Jefferson and his wife would be very fond of a woman named Lydia Broadnax, who was the head cook, and who treated the Jeffersons very well. Mister Wythe himself was very fond of her. And uh, Jefferson, um, Jefferson and with, I mean, Jeff Mr. Jefferson and his wife always um, tipped uh, Lydia heavily for her services. I know that doesn't seem like much, but I will say this. Um, I, I know that I mentioned from an earlier podcast that um, Lydia did go to Richmond with Mr. With. And yes, Lydia was an unfortunate victim of the uh, poisoning by With's grandnephew. Lydia did survive, but her eyesight was never the same. But Jefferson was kind enough to help uh, pay for her medical bills. So it does pay to be nice to others in general, but it also pays to be nice to those whom are also um, a servant, to, a servant to, to someone above. Um, I know that perhaps the system at the time was probably not the the most pleasant, but at the same time, we also must not shy away from it and know what did, in fact, take place. However, it is nice to know that uh, people like Jefferson himself did treat those of another race. In my opinion, he did treat the servants who worked it with the state with the utmost uh, respect that they deserved to be treated with. What was unique about the Board of Revisers? 
I've never uh, knew about the uh, the Board of uh, Revisers until I um, read this uh, book, but it is a um, but it is something worth uh, pointing out. The uh, Board of Revisers uh, was a committee that was designed to revise uh, Virginia's legal code on a full scale. The legal code seems like a, a big thing, kind of like what we think of as like the tax code um, that the IRS implements and then Congress tries to go about, um, you know, reforming it so that it's not so complicated. But Thomas Jefferson and George Wythe, along with a third fella, who would be, uh, they would be known as the trio. His name was Edmund Pendleton. He was a very, another very distinguished Virginian who was very well respected uh, in Williamsburg. Mr. Pendleton, Mr. Wythe, and Mr. Jefferson uh, are a three-member uh, group that are on the Board of Revisers, but they, are, they have the uh, primary um, responsibility to go about revising Virginia's legal code on a full scale. So, like, for example, they will go about restructuring the judiciary system. How so? Well, you know, there's all different, you know, when one goes to court, it could be for various reasons. But let me ask you this. If you went to court over a civil matter, should a judge who specializes in admiralty affairs being that of shipping, would a judge, is a judge who handles just admiralty matters be equipped to handle uh, civil matters? Probably not. So we need to um, better uh, diversify the uh, judiciary system. So in other words, we have a three-tier court branch now in Virginia. The chancery system, which handles civil affairs, or the chancery court rather, the general court would handle criminal affairs like theft, even murder. The Admiralty obviously would handle the shipping industry. Judges from each court met together and formed a court of appeals as well as a state supreme court. So hey, there you have it, folks. We're now we're now in a position where we have greatly uh, reformed our court system to where we have proper levels of authority uh, to uh, start out at and work our way up at the top. I think it's fair to say that if a case went to the state Supreme Court of Virginia, that would have been a last resort when all other um, measures had uh, failed or if the ruling that you did not like beforehand was not to your satisfaction. But obviously the judges would have come together and decided, hey, does this case really merit us hearing at the highest level? Kind of like what we know of with the United States Supreme Court, because uh, not every case goes before the United States Supreme Court. Even the nine justices on that court will meet together and decide, does this case have true merit for us to be hearing? Is it fair to say that we might be establishing a system of checks and balances in Virginia that could uh, be the equivalent of what's needed down the road in the post-Revolutionary War era? Absolutely. Now, um, what three areas required major reform? Of course, you know, the judiciary system obviously required some re reform. How about education, crime, and religion? Now, I did mention religion earlier, so I might as well just go ahead and start with that. For well over a hundred years, from the time that um, the English first uh, established their settlement in uh, Jamestown, Virginia, up until 
about three-fourths of the way into the 18th century, which would have been 1775 and just right after. So we're looking at probably about just, just short of 170 years, or right about 170 years. The Anglican Church, or the Church of England, reigned supreme in Virginia. So therefore, Virginia is supporting this uh, church. And even if you don't like what the Anglican Church teaches, offers, guess what? If you're a dissenter, your taxes still go to the Church of England, whether you like it or not. And of course, the Church of England was not very fond of um, religious sects like the Baptists, the Methodists. Uh, they weren't fond of... Uh, the only group that they may have been fond with, and we've, my wife and I learned this at Williamsburg, was Presbyterians. But if you were a Baptist and a Methodist, um, you didn't... Your chances of um, of being accepted in in Virginia society in general were, general were very um, they were very unheard of because uh, Baptists sadly at that time were were frowned upon. Um, many of them were jailed against their own will. Of course, the um, the courts would say, okay, if you want to preach, that's fine, but you know, just to let you know, you're still going to pay your taxes to the Anglican Church. So. Try all you want, but uh, eventually over time, maybe you'll decide that it's not worth uh, pursuing. But that's how the way, that's how it was in Virginia, um, that there was only one denomination, and that was the Anglican Church. If you wanted to um, become a Catholic, you had to go to Maryland. That was a better um, haven for Catholic refugees. So, in, so anyways, with religion in Virginia, it's not until about 1778 which is the year that taxes are finally abolished in support of the Anglican Church. So up until 1778, people in Virginia were still paying taxes to the Anglican Church. Now, Jefferson, With, and Edmund Pendleton go about, um, pro go about introducing uh, major um, religious reform in Virginia. And there is a bill known as the Freedom of Religion Bill, just 101 information on it is that it basically out the most important 101 piece of information I can tell you is that it outlaws or I should say prohibits church and government from influencing aka telling one another how to run their affairs in other words the church cannot tell the government how to conduct its business the church can't come in and say hey uh, governor jefferson can you do a favor for um, for this fellow clergy person of our church, um, can you um, can you see to it that um, that X, Y, and Z happens? No, that's not the church's place, and it certainly is not the government's place to say to the church, "Hey, this is how you need to teach. This is how your biblical teachings should be done when when um, preparing uh, the sermon and for the congregation on this particular Sunday or going forward." In other words. The government can't tell the church how to go about teaching its uh, findings, or let alone its uh, biblical interpretations to a congregation. So in other words, freedom of religion isn't just about worshiping what religious sect you choose to be a part of. Freedom of religion also allows a minister to conduct his or, own, his or her own sermons the way he or she feels comfortable sharing them with their congregation. And as long as the message is relevant, that's what we hope. 
That's what. That's why you know going to church when we listen to sermons. You know we want to make sure that the messages that are given to us are relevant, but the government cannot tell ministers what they should and should not be uh, preaching to their congregations. So that's basically the freedom of religion bill is outlawing church and state or church and government from influencing or aka telling one another how to run their affairs. The bill itself allows for better means of religious diversity. And someone else we can have to thank is uh, James Madison, because James Madison, you know, he didn't attend William & Mary. He went to the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton. But when James Madison came back to Virginia after he finished school, he was still blown away at just how far behind Virginia was with, with religious tolerance. Where he went to school in New Jersey, being um, what we now know Princeton, there was a great appreciation for religious toleration, diversity. But yes, he could have gone to William and Mary and gotten a great education, but he had to go where he felt comfortable. And obviously, the College of New Jersey was a better fit for him in terms of uh, religious acceptance. We also should keep in mind this too, folks. There's only one college in the South, um, still even when Thomas Jefferson is governor, and that's William & Mary. There's no University of Virginia just yet. There is no such thing as a University of South Carolina or University of North Carolina. However, um, I do know that uh, my father-in-law is a UNC grad, and um, he did tell me that um, UNC um, first opened... um, in the late 1780s so it was obviously before the university of virginia but uh but we should just keep in mind that at one time there was only one collegiate institute in the south in colonial american times and that was william and mary now as for education um these three men um besides the restructuring of william and mary's curriculum the trio proposed for constructing a large public library in richmond to establishing multiple free schools throughout the state for those whom were destitute and poor. Remember, as I said from the previous podcast, George Wythe's mother strongly encouraged him to advocate for those who were less fortunate, who did not have a voice in their government, who um, who struggled to um, to make a good life for themselves. I mean, there were plenty of people who were destitute and poor throughout most of their life. Why not give them some educational opportunity to to better themselves? Absolutely. So they should um, be allowed to have that opportunity. So um, I applaud um, George Wythe, along with Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Pendleton, for wanting those whom are less fortunate to have an opportunity to know what it's like to get an edu- to get some form of uh, quality education. As for crime, this is a very um, This was an interesting one. You know, leading up to the American Revolution, I know in Virginia especially, my wife and I have been in the courthouse uh, many of times as well as in the Capitol. The local courthouse uh, would have handled uh, misdemeanor affairs, but at the main Capitol where the House of Burgesses met, the court cases that uh, took place dealt with uh, felonies. And when I think of felonies for that time, uh, we think of um, horse theft, uh, just general theft in general, murder, uh, high-level crimes. 
And if let's say you uh, stole a man's horse, which was uh, stealing a man's livelihood, basically, and you were found guilty of it, you would have been branded. And they would have uh, taken a poker and they would have um, scalded you either on the thumb of your hand or in the middle. However, they would mark T for theft and it would serve as a reminder of the crime you committed and anyone who came in contact with you would know that you had committed a crime regardless of how long it, it had been. It stayed with you for the rest of your life. But if you committed another crime, you wouldn't have been so fortunate. What do you think it would have meant? Death by hanging. Now, I know that doesn't sound pleasant, but that's what happened back then, folks. The community, as the, um, the, um, the guides and the docents, they tell you all, the audience, that, hey, the community, being Williamsburg, they were willing to work with those whom, who messed up. But you only got but so many chances. You didn't have a three strikes and you're out system. But the first time around after being branded, that should have been enough of a warning not to mess up. And most people did learn from their mistakes the first time. But they have told us that, um, that there were those who didn't learn. I don't know what the percentage was, but those who didn't learn obviously had to learn the hard way, which meant the second go-around death by hanging, if it was theft or, or even something worse like murder. So um, how, does, how do Jefferson, uh, Pendleton, and Wythe go about reforming uh, crime? Well, they all advocated lenient punishments. For example, death sentences were to be eliminated for all crimes except murder and treason. Okay, do we all know what treason is? Well, tr when one commits treason, they are no longer um, loyal, faithful to their country. Treason's a vague uh, word, uh, but that's a 101 description I can give you. Um, I do know that uh, an act of treason, I do know that treason would require um, the witness, the witnessing of two other people to prove that the other person um, from the opposite side did commit some form of uh, treason. But treason, I think it's fair to say that treason would have required um, hanging because if you allowed someone to live who had committed treason, what do you think that person could have um, represented? They could have been represented as a martyr, someone who was dying, who was willing to die for something that everybody else knew wasn't worth dying for. It was um, hideous, um, ludicrous. Basically, they didn't want this per that person to serve as a, a bad role model to those who would feel that it would be okay to um, lower their standards and commit something that would have been seen in the eyes of others as being treasonous. You know, counterfeiting crimes in most of the other colonies did involve uh, hanging by death, but uh, Jefferson, Wythe, and Pendleton actually favored six-year prison terms versus a hanging. On the other hand, they advocated if a robbery occurred in a wealthy person's home, like, say, Mr. Wythe's, an individual would have gotten a four-year sentence. If the, if the individual committed a robbery in an average person's home, like John Smith's, just use that as a fictitious name, then they would have advocated for a three-year sentence. Now, I do know this, that uh, most people did not spend five years in jail in colonial times because, you know, for one, life expectancy was, wasn't as high 
Of course, I know a lot could depend on where you were living, but usually if a person spent a couple of nights in jail, depending on usually depending on the offense that was committed, if it was, if it was a low-level offense and it was still required that they spent a couple of days in jail, I think that was enough to hopefully get that individual to realize, hey, maybe it's not a good idea to be in jail long-term or to come back. Now, all of these reforms were big, but I can tell you this much, not all the reforms that were introduced were uh, passed, but many of them were. It did take about seven years for the state legislature to reform the criminal code and the restructuring of the state government. There were 126 bills proposed uh, altogether. Okay, if 126 bills were proposed during an 18-year, during a seven-year span, that means that... Um, there are about 18 bills proposed on a yearly basis, 18 times 7 being 126. But more than 50 of them were approved, so if more than 50 are approved out of 126, that's still not bad. Now, what about for uh, George Wythe when he becomes a professor of law? What kind of professor do you think he is? Well, when I read this book for the first time, I was amazed at what he had done. I knew for a fact that he could not have been the typical um, average Joe law professor. I knew he had to have been special. Well, when George Wythe becomes a professor of law in 1779, he goes about teaching law much differently compared to the traditional British system. Whereas the British system heavily focused on reading and memorizing law, Wythe's plan revolved around three-tier instruction, lectures, discussions of readings, and to his own personal invention, the moot court and legislature system. So, Wythe's law students were, requ were requ required to read copies of British and American legal decision decisions, but they were also re required to have open discussions about them. So, yes, you can read all you want about the decisions, but you need to discuss why the juries reached the decisions that they did and how the cases themselves um, affected um, the outcomes of society, not only at the present time that they were um, taking place, but how the decisions would have carried over into the future. As for the moot court system, law students were assigned cases to prosecute and defend after all, remember we have two attorneys, a, a prosecution, or what we call representing the plaintiff, and the defense representing the defendant. So we have law students assigned to cases to prosecute and defend, whereas other students played roles of defendants to witnesses. So basically every, everybody's getting a part to play. And I should point out that how ironic when you go to Colonial Williamsburg, I don't know when they would be able to resume doing this, but up until COVID came, when my wife and I would go, there were many of times at the uh, courthouse where, um, where the um, tourists would be allowed to um, do a mock trial uh, that would last maybe about 10, 15 minutes, but, um, but various uh, members of the uh, body would be able to, um, to take part in a reenactment of an 18th century court trial, which was uh, really well worth doing. I hope that they can do that again one day. Now, as for the moot legislature, George Wythe presided as the House Speaker, and students brought bills forward to address what were considered weaknesses in Virginia state law, which also included debating as well as amending laws. 
So think about this, folks. It's one thing to want to be a politician or be a lawyer, but if you want to be either one of those things, don't you need some um, experience? Yeah, you need to know what it's like to be able to um, prepare yourself to be out in what I call the lion's den. In other words, by doing mock uh, trials, mock legislating, legislative debating, this gives the individual a better um, sense of confidence on how to um, be able to prepare themselves for what will lie ahead in the future so that, yes, you can read all the um, case findings all you want, but if you don't actually rehearse or um, act out something, then it would be easy to say that uh, John Smith might be stuck between a rock and a hard place. So in other words, George Wythe wants his students to be prepared for what lies at stake when they um, graduate from college and how they can take their knowledge of moot court and moot legislature sessions and those findings will, and how those findings and what they've learned upon will um, lead them down the road to a successful career. And yes, the moot court and the legislative legislature did have positive effects on students' lives. I can give you a good example of one. His name is Thomas Shippen. He believed both fields and practices gave him higher levels of confidence. And men from Thomas Jefferson to John Marshall, as you all know, I've mentioned John Marshall's name many of times. Uh, he was a student of George Wythe's, and he was... Um, the chief, he was a Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court from 1801 to 1835. Um, other men like John Wickham, who would become president of the Virginia Bar Association, George Nicholas, Attorney General of Kentucky. Then you had uh, two other Virginians whom have counties named after them in southwest Virginia, being um, William Giles and Littleton Taswell. They were both U.S. Senators as well as Governors of Virginia. All of these men that I've mentioned benefited under Wythe's tutelage. So it's fair to say that had George Wythe not instituted a moot court system at William & Mary as well as a moot legislature um, uh, process, who knows if any of these men would have had successful careers in the, in the law profession or let alone political. Um, yes, you can have a good law career or a political career, but it also takes the right person at the right time to be able to mold students to where they truly do have um, incredible amounts of success. So all of these men whose names I mentioned did play vital roles in Virginia as well as in the case of George Nicholas with uh, Kentucky. And it might be fair to say, I know there is a place in um, Kentucky known as Nicholasville that it might possibly be named after him. Now, you know, with um, had obviously had great relationships with his um, students, but it turns out that he also had a good relationship with children in Williamsburg. You know, after all, he did adore his grandnephew a lot. He showered him with gifts pretty much all of his life. Even when young George with Sweeney came to Williamsburg to visit his great uncle. I guess I should ask this right now. It's one thing to shower gifts with a niece or nephew or with nieces and nephews that you care about. But on the other hand, if you shower one with too much, too many gifts, could that be a bad thing? Maybe. But 
Mr. With, but for Mr. With to think that there are issues with his grandnephew, I mean, to, to really for him to really think that there are things wrong with his grandnephew would be foreign to him. At least that's what he wants to believe, or what we would all have hoped to have believed, especially back in that day and time. But as I've said before, family dysfunction was um, did exist in the time of our forefathers, just like it does sadly today. So what happens in 1780? Well, the capital sadly relocates from Williamsburg to Richmond. There were many reasons for it, but one of the reasons for it was to prevent a British attack from happening further inland. Thomas Jefferson thought that if the capital was relocated to Richmond, they would be on high ground and that the British would never come past, um, they would never go further west. How wrong that was, um, not to get off subject, but, um, but Thomas Jefferson almost lost his life. As a matter of fact, many in the legislature almost lost their life. By 1781, they were um, running for their lives. Jefferson um, was forced to retreat to Monticello. They, there was even a makeshift capital that was uh, relocated from Charlottesville then to Stanton. And if it hadn't been for a fellow named Jack Jewett, who was who is often referred to as the Paul Revere of the South, Thomas Jefferson probably would have been hung. Well, he would have been captured by the British. The British were led by Banastray Tarleton. They made it all the way up to Monticello, but Jack Jewett arrived just in time before Banastray Tarleton and his um, for, dragoon forces arrived. Um, if you travel on 522 through um, Mineral and Gum Spring through Louisa, there is a sign uh, or a, a sign honoring uh, Jack Jewett's midnight ride, uh, which is in the little town of Cuckoo. <laughs> yep, believe it or not, there is a place in Virginia called Cuckoo. It's in Louisa County, but he made a, about like a 40-mile ride during the middle of the night and made it to the hilltop of Monticello to warn Jefferson that the British were in fact coming and had it not been for Mr. Jewett, uh, Thomas Jefferson and other um, Virginians would have been captured and sent and taken to England only to have been hung. It was not, it was, I will tell you this much, um, that when Jefferson was governor, it, it, by that point, it was the lowest of his, uh, lowest moment in his political life. But the relocation, though, from Williamsburg to Richmond also impacted Williamsburg badly um, because Williamsburg fell into disarray from all realms. There were tavern closures, the closing, the closing of men and women's clothing stores. The, clo the relocation also impacted William and Mary to where tension and conflict arose amongst administrators, professors, and students. Enrollment was impacted. It, it, it declined. Other problems arose, such as students engaging in reckless behavior, excessive drinking. So, yes, Mr. Wythe was greatly impacted by uh, Williamsburg's collapse as a result of uh, the capital being re relocated to Richmond. And considering that he had lived in Williamsburg for a great deal of his adult life, and knowing friends like Thomas Jefferson were no longer residing there, I don't see how living there would have been really worth... Um, worth the while, and sadly to make matters worse in 1787, while yes, 1787 was a historic year, given that the United States Constitution when, was signed um, 
by 39 men on, um, I don't know if all 39 men signed on September 19th of 1787, but it was signed and put into play as the nation's legal document, or I should say the nation's official governing document. You know, it replaced that um, out-of-whack Articles of Confederation, which pretty much let the states run the show and not give the government, not give the national government any sense of respect. So, yes, 1787 was a great year for the U.S. Constitution. And yes, George Wythe attended the convention, but he had to leave early. And unfortunately, Wythe was unable to sign the Constitution. And the reason for that was because his wife of 31 years, Elizabeth, had fallen gravely ill. And about a month before the Constitution went into effect, his wife Elizabeth passed away on August the 23rd. Her passing greatly impacted with to where he struggled with performing daily duties such as house chores to paying bills. Now, I'm sure many of you are now saying to yourself, how could George Wythe not know how to pay a bill? Well, let me tell you all this. When you visit the Wythe house in Williamsburg, the tour guides there have told my wife and I, and they've probably told plenty of other uh, visitors, that Mr. Wythe's wife, Elizabeth, it was very common for women, especially her, given in the status that um, Elizabeth and George Wythe were in, along with other prominent families, where women had um, lots of um, duties, and one of them happened to be paying bills. In other words, they had their own inventory um, journals to keep, and they also had to, you know, assist their husbands with running the estate, and those whom were, um, those whom were, um, what I call servants, slaves. I mean, they basically had to keep an inventory not just of the people who were assisting them, but everything that was in their home, which also meant, you know, paying bills. So. Basically, George Wythe allowed for his wife to perform not only the essential house chores, but to also pay the bills. So she basically ran the finances. And so therefore, I think it's fair to say that it was very common in 18th century times for women of higher status to actually be managing the, uh, the finances of a well-to-do estate. But tensions from within the College of William and Mary to student rowdiness and Elizabeth's death ultimately, in the end, led George Wythe to leave Williamsburg for where he could focus on um, his position on the Chancery Court, or the Virginia Chancery Court. Remember, in 1789, he was um, named to this uh, position, but even in 1789, he was still living in Williamsburg. But it's not until 1791 that he officially moves to Richmond. Now, of course, Richmond is still struggling to um, maintain good order, to maintain a respectable image. It really is um, an outlaw city. It's kind of like the Wild West. And in the next time I'm on the air with you all, we're going to talk about Richmond. But we're also going to talk about George Wythe Sweeney, being Wythe's grandnephew. Basically, the next chapter is titled uh, The Decadent the boom town of Richmond and the decadent life of George Wythe Sweeney. In other words, we're going to learn a lot about George Wythe Sweeney's um, 
not-so-good fortunes. We're going to learn about just how, um, really how crazy Richmond was, whether it was from prostitution, gambling, crime, um, a city that um, just was not anywhere like what Williamsburg was. Complete opposites, complete polar opposites, rather. Well, it's good to be on. It has been good to be on the air with you all. I look forward to being back on um, soon. And thank you once again for listening. And if you know of people who who would like to uh, podcast, tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless, and um, the rewards, uh, in my opinion, go beyond the sky ceiling. Thank you, and continue to stay safe.